We got into that mountain hut late in the afternoon, and the frosty light trickling through the windows was pale and white, but bright enough still to illuminate the ominous sentence that had been carved into the mantelpiece. Beware. Animals chew anything. <laughs> That's what it said. And as an animal myself, I felt a little bit targeted. And then I thought it through and figured, yeah, fair enough. There's not too much I wouldn't have a nibble on in a mountain hut. Luckily, most of our provisions were stored in quite hard glass bottles. Stout and whiskey. So we weren't afraid to keep our stuff above the fireplace or on the window sills. We had no real fear that some pesky chap would come along and sink its teeth into these supplies. It was winter, and we'd wandered to that hut through a, an incandescent forest of sassafras and yellow gums. Everything was wet. Rain flung itself down from the branches and upwards as well from the shrubbery as we came pushing through. We wrung our clothes out every hour on the way in. But by then, the moisture had sunk in so deeply that even our hopes were rather damp. Nevertheless, as we drew near to that hut, I felt assured that sometimes activities that bring the most discomfort and inconvenience repay you with the most lasting pleasure. And likewise, I knew that the things that we do that feel good sometimes have no substantial value at all. Just before evening fell, the sun came out. We took a few pieces of chockey and a cup each with which to scoop water out of the streams. We walked to a lake of great mystique. It looked as if its depths were touching another realm, some subterranean country of dreams. My mate had said that the trout in there were shimmering kaleidoscopes. Large, swimming prisms of radiant flesh. And he ought to know. Waterfalls still ran down tree trunks, and the scaparia bushes cut up our goose-bumped legs. And leeches strained to reach our veins and suck our blood. But both of us felt contentment flood through our nervous systems, and ideas flowed through our bodies to our brains. I tested out a theory on my mate that day something I'd borrowed from a scientist who'd suggested that walking is the native rhythm of a human, that we have an ancestral memory of a nomadic past, that we are lulled into a state of peace when we move to the metronome of the human gait, rocked like we are being held by our mothers as they move upon the plateaus, plains or savannas. So walking prompts thought, an awareness of ourselves in space. It places us in deep relationships with the world around us. My mate agreed, but he quickly changed the subject to beer. So maybe he thought I was a little bit off my rocker. These past few weeks I've been working on a project that borrows from these themes as well. I'm essentially guiding a walking meditation on camera to mate's project and she's directing me as I go clambering up a hill on the back of the property that she's house-sitting, trudging up through the eucalypts in a zen sort of way until she calls out, Nah, you're doing it wrong. 
Move slower, dickhead. Be more centred. Walk better. Yeah, alright, I'm exaggerating. Actually, it's been great to have this project on the go, especially given the circumstances. And it's given me a chance to revisit my own ideas about the kind of equilibrium we're constantly working on when we walk in the bush, especially on uneven terrain. Every single step requires attention. Our bodies are constantly readjusting to a wonky boulder or a branch sticking out at us, or a clump of moss or a skink we might not want to crush. And our brains want to take in the palette of elaborate colours and the suite of exquisite textures that make up a landscape. Plus there's the excitement of new stimuli, like sulphur-crested cockatoos that come squawking through the treetops, or the opening in the forest that allows us a view to the metallic mountains out west. In the midst of all this, I reckon we do find something of our awareness of self there. Somehow the strangeness of being human, vibrating with all these sensations, the intellectual interpretations of it all, it all melts away. We get into a rhythm in which we instinctively, without too much thinking, too much trying, acquire a feeling of balance maybe, perhaps even a sense of belonging. But possibly this is all a little bit zen. Should we talk about beer? The sky lately has been as dark as a pint of Cascade Stout. But last night half a moon stood aloof to the north. It was seemingly shedding parts of itself as loose splinters of rain were caught in its own light. I dreamed of a hazardous journey somewhere in Mexico a detailed sequence of scenes that were only tenuously connected to one another. This morning, the moisture in the air mimicked snow. The wind swirled around as if it was the churning of the ocean sublimated into the medium of air. Now it is night again, and the moon paints a grey avenue of trees. The stars are like white petals scattered by the day's gusts. And my home, a misplaced train carriage far from any of the infrastructure you might expect to find with a train, sits silently in the middle of all this activity. I'm not sure how easily you can picture it, this train carriage out in the Tasmanian bush. It's an orangey-red colour, the exterior's a bit scuffed, but there's a lovely timber deck at the front and out the back there's a little cottage where I actually sleep. The trees behind it are all tall and elegant, 
and now that we're well into autumn, they're shedding strips of bark and bearing trunks coloured mauve and cream. And the wind runs circles around the carriage, kicking up stray leaves, making a ruckus. And yet the birds take it on like the most experienced sailors navigating over big waves. Trains aren't really a big part of Tasmanian life. There's not really any passenger trains about anymore, so it's a curious thing to be cooped up in here, to have a train as a home. To be honest, in the past, trains only ever really reminded me of my travels in more exotic places. I'd think of Berlin or Delhi or Melbourne. So to have a train carriage as a home base is interesting, I guess. It's a really good space in which to think about travel and home, movement and stillness, where I am and where I'd like to go, and who I am, who I want to be. For a fair few years now I've had weird jobs and an itinerant lifestyle, but I reckon this summer took the cake, for metaphors at least. Among other things, I would wake up in a train and then get in my car to drive to a job that might be as a hiking guide or as a storyteller on board a ship. Oh boy, people would say, you really love forms of transport, don't you? I don't know why they're American. (laughs) Anyway, this makes it all the more interesting now that the movement has stopped. But even before the current prohibitions on travel, this train was no longer a locomotive. Locomotion literally just means movement between places. Most words with a Latin origin tend to take on a fairly upper-crust vibe when they're transferred into English, but uh, I don't know that locomotion does. Maybe it's lost some of its sheen because loco is the Spanish word for crazy. It does seem possible that in the coming months we'll be able to borrow from that to make a, a new meaning of locomotion. That my life, in this train, will become a locomotive again because it will have transported me straight to madness. Thinking about the, the last few weeks of isolation, social distancing, I've realised that what I mostly miss is spontaneity. Those days or nights where you Your plans just go out the window, where they get waylaid. I miss the chance to be surprised, to wander into new landscapes, to enter unknown scenes. I guess this is a minor complaint, given that we're in the midst of a major crisis, but pursuing new stories in in this way has been the essence of my existence for quite a few years now. And I know exactly how I'd normally deal with the sort of stagnant feeling I had a little bit last week. I'd toss my belongings in a backpack and I would go for a long, solitary walk. And my mind and my body would be rejuvenated. Or perhaps I'd begin preparing for a journey elsewhere, for a time of travel. I would throw myself somewhere where the safety net just isn't there. Where misunderstandings lead to new situations. I would be keen to go out and get lost. But at the moment, that's not to be. 
for now the journeys must be made internally, in imagination, in memory, or as with my road trip in Mexico last night, in dreams. We try not to get too attached to things. But we also have to pay our respects, at least a little bit, to all the shoes we've worn through over the years. I personally have seen perhaps two or three hundred pairs fall apart. I do walk a lot. There are those whose soles were rubbed thin, practically erased. Those whose glue fell apart at the heel whose stitching seemed to dissolve in the acidic peat of the Tasmanian highlands. Some simply never fit me. I think of those 80s-style basketball shoes I found in an op shop when I was 19. They practically exploded when I put too much pressure on them, in this particular instance when I was running away from a demonic dog. In Gorizia, Italy... A very old farmer with enormous ears and amnesia gifted me his black patent leather shoes. They were like natty little matte black beetles for my feet. They were so swish that it had been appropriate for even a, a wedding or a funeral. And although that didn't at all match the rest of my attire, the casual outfits in which I had been trotting around the world and which were all falling apart by then, I nevertheless accepted the gift. And when a few days later I walked around the elegant streets of Ljubljana, one of the world's most beautiful cities, I reckon, I felt appropriately shod, even suddenly entirely clad in the aura of that kind old man whose nobility was evident even as his memory had burned out, so buggered that no mechanic could ever fix it. I strode through those spacious squares where well-dressed folks didn't even bat an eyelid at me in horror. Into marketplaces where books and baked goods were sold, over bridges spanning the Ljubljanica River, through the front doors of museums and galleries. I felt so presentable that I might have walked straight into the royal palace and introduced myself, had there been a royal palace and I wondered if I might not walk the next leg of my journey, up and over the Alps, through Austria to Munich. Why not? These shoes were like the hooves of a donkey, firm and tenacious. And I thought how brilliantly the fresh spring snow would shine against that leather, so dark I may as well have been wearing carved obsidian. In the end I hitchhiked. And a week later... Beneath the gothic shadow of the Munich Cathedral, underneath a statue of some equestrian hero from history, I clipped one of these spiffy black shoes, so recently fitted to my own hyperactive feet, on a cobblestone, and the sole came clean off. 
I was mortified. I was saddened. I could barely believe my bad luck. But ah, how many shoes have I tortured? How few have been able to withstand the punishment I put them through. Even the hardiest hiking boot has soon enough failed me. There are only so many kilometres footwear can bear. But my own two feet, they can go on forever. They can travel unlimited distances. So the sole flapped and slapped against the pavement as I continued sightseeing around the city streets. Eventually I kicked it clean off, the hard rubber slab narrowly missing the head of an old Bavarian lady as it catapulted off the bottom of the shoe at last. I was no longer elegantly dressed, but I still had some sense of style, simply from having had the footwear of that old Italian farmer. Those shoes disintegrated upon my feet, but the gift did not lose its luster. I kept the aura. And subsequently I walked around Europe with these broken down shoes on until I found another pair. Somewhere. I think they were in a bin. The lining torn and the foam inside all gone, so that blisters formed on my heels after a mile or so of walking. But that wouldn't stop me. I kept walking. And one of those days I stood in front of a little chapel on a hill. And having surveyed the scene before me, I said, I think it's time to walk home. And so I did. I wandered back to Tasmania, churning through the shoes as I walked across the continents. I still remember each and every one of them. May they rest in peace. Yes, I missed the long journey the impulse decision, the invented objective, the stranger in the corner, the road I've never been down, the plaque I haven't read. I miss the pub, because the pub is where so many people wander in just to see what will happen next. For example, I was in the Tarkine Hotel on an aimless jaunt through the forests of Tasmania's west coast. And as usual, the crew in there was motley. It was midday, the perfect time for a tinny on the way to somewhere else. Or nowhere as it might be. After all, the 70 kilometre gravel track that heads north from that pub is known as the road to nowhere. And that's where I'd be going once I'd downed my jar and finished off the conversation that had started as soon as I'd walked in. That was no bushwalker's trail, the road to nowhere, but rumour had it there were two people hiking along that sandy road, between rainforest and heath, wandering but with no thumb out, refusing lifts in fact, determined to do it by their own steam. 
Fair enough, I said. But the bloke who'd barged into the bar with this report looked up at me breathlessly. Mate, they're blimmin' mad. Out there, shifts of blue and white light roved over the hillsides as the clouds were pushed quickly along by westerlies. The quartzite mountains glistened or fell dull accordingly, and stags of dead eucalypts, having perished under the duress of either flames or frost, stood arrayed against the low, dark shrubbery that clothes the mountain's flanks. I passed the first of these road-to-nowhere walkers while I was rounding a corner. He was marching on and gave me a brisk wave, and it wasn't a good place to pull up anyway, so I continued on, but a few minutes later, on a straight stretch, I could see the other walker coming towards me. This one seemed less chirpy. I decelerated and wound down the window. And the woman looked up at me and gave a terse greeting. Her face was pink and you could see that there was no sparkle in her eyes. I asked her how she was enjoying the walk. She didn't answer. I offered her some whiskey. Her name was Rosanna. She was a 34-year-old Dutch woman with a distinct London accent. She worked in fashion and interior design, and I suspected that she was several removes from her usual context as she heaved her backpack off her shoulders and crouched in the gravel with me. We had a dram from a tin cup, and then I lit my camp stove. Because Billy T coaxes conversation out of a person. Thus Rosanna started to explain what she was doing here, and the story centred around the gentleman I'd seen striding southwards a few minutes earlier. Of course, I'd presumed that Rosanna had come with this other walker, but she paused uncomfortably when I asked about him. Yes, she said eventually. They had been dating when they arrived in Tassie, and together they'd conjured up an itinerary to walk around the island as close to the coastlines as possible but they hadn't made it very far when they got into an argument and split up. Her partner had taken off with most of the gear, but stubbornly Rosanna had taken a bus back to where they'd started, restocked with camping equipment, returned to where they'd had their blue and kept walking. Now Rosanna and her ex-boyfriend were independently walking the same route around Tasmania. At this stage they were about 5 k's apart, in fact, most days they were passing one another. Usually Rosanna would start earlier, but then the other bloke was the quicker walker, so he'd speed past her about midday. We ended up camping near to each other that night. Rosanna herself had no cooker, so I whipped up a camp stir-fry, her first hot meal in a while. I found myself delivering the occasional spiel, trying to explain the ecology of the Takina forests, tracing back the natural history to that great divorce of the supercontinents. She sighed and rubbed her sore feet and thought little of my lecture. And when I asked her for a short synopsis of why she was doing this peculiar walk when there were so many better ways to travel in Tasmania, she looked up at me and sadly said, I have come to think that walking is a way of defending myself against entropy. If I keep walking, I will never lose my hopes, my youth, my beauty, 
or my mind. I wasn't so sure about this. But who was I to judge? I too have done my share of sauntering, perhaps in search of something too, although rarely would I have been able to clarify what. No doubt it all looks like much the same sort of folly from afar, especially with the short shorts on, knobbly knees on display for all to see. Likewise, I'm aware of the luck that's been required to have enjoyed a youth on hoof, a freedom of movement in more ways than one. One time I walked 500 kilometres across an island, not around it, but across it. And the first person I saw as I staggered into my destination, a, a town in the Arctic Circle, was a woman in a wheelchair. We exchanged eye contact for perhaps a second with a shared awareness that we were two very different bodies, from opposite ends of the same planet, on separate trajectories. And yet in this is what I really miss. The vulnerability to events. The enlacement of myself with the earth and its inhabitants. And I suppose there are many ways to go about that. Walking is just the medium I've gone with for the most part. Anyway. Rosanna's story has a pleasant postscript. When she and I parted ways the next morning... I asked her to send me an email once she'd finished her journey, just so that I knew that she was okay. And she did. It turned out that she'd reunited with her fella, somewhere on the south coast. And they pulled into Hobart together some time later. All had ended very well indeed. The circumnavigation was a success. And a circle had been completed. that there are still a few bush tracks near me that aren't part of reserve, so I can still stroll off into beautiful landscapes, move my body through the living bush. But a lot of different sorts of ecosystems are, are still off limits here in Tasmania. The contiguous ranges of dolerite and quartzite, the buttongrass moorlands and open heath, these significant pieces of the puzzle of Tasmanian geography. But I still might come upon rare rainforest birds decorated in crescent moons which watch you warily from the shadows. And there is a river that carries the first snows in its silky flow, running off towards the ocean, ready to be circulated around the world. This, my friends, is not a walking meditation. But close your eyes and watch me stride upon root and rock with this wide gate, the gift of a childhood in the bush. See me move at a fair clip, but with casual steps. No need to race. Just pace out the hectares ahead. 
I am here so that the land might impress itself upon me. I know that what I need is slow eyes, and to see quickly, to catch the light as it shines off glossy leaves or the surface of the creek. If there is movement in the bushes, I must be able to pause, to investigate. It could be a snake, or a thrush, or a wombat. I want to be surprised. The sudden revelation of a lizard or a bird, that's only one way to receive it. The boisterous, spontaneous behaviour of weather can do the same, a gust that blows my beanie clean off my scone. Vegetation in strange places or even unexpected arrangements can be equally shocking. An early leatherwood flower once gave me more of a jolt than a near miss in traffic might have. Once upon a time, as I reached the top of a Tasmanian escarpment, I found a wedge-tailed eagle standing on a boulder maybe three feet from me. A breath of a breeze shook a few of the feathers in his hairy breeches. Well, good day, I said. And he leaped off the rock and soared away laconically. And on an overcast afternoon, wandering along a lonely track, I had a quoll sprint at me. I stood stock still, but at the last moment he noticed my existence, pulled his tawny little face into a grimace and bounded off into the bushes. I'd say we both got a bit of a shock. And that is good because I'm sure that years ago I read someone's beatitude, something like, Blessed are those capable of surprising and capable of being surprised. And this was a bon mot that I turned into my personal motto. All sorts of surprises spring up in your mind, spring up from within, as they spring up from healthy country as well. The bush is a network of activity. Some of it is falcon fast, so rapid that it's hard to keep up with. Much of it is slow. Maybe the slow beings give us the bigger surprises. Light and leaf, rock and skink, everything has a way of interacting. And who knows how it might deal with us moving on foot, bearing only a few provisions, being only a little person in a thick forest or broad plains. Operating in this way is opening ourselves up to the subtle impulses of the landscape, the instincts of other species, the decisions of our fellow creatures, the nuances of our land. It's a vulnerable state to be in, of course. A state in which anything might happen. That seems like good practice. And I realise now that I want it more than almost anything. To go out there and be surprised. <laughs>